0: 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to talk for a while on that last phrase, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Now, just a side note. Uh, if you're interested in this topic on a more theological academic level, I actually, it was the title or at least the revised title of my doctoral thesis, which you can purchase the book at PentecostalPublish.com. It's called The Glory of God in the Face of Jesus Christ. But don't fear, I'm not going to get off into deep uh, academic uh, jargon today. I'll try to be practical and try to break open the word of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But let me just share a little bit. When I wrote my thesis, I couldn't approach it from a theological point of view or a doctrinal point of view as if the Bible is true. I had to approach it from a neutral academic point of view. So here's how I tried to do it. Uh, So if you read the New Testament, you find it was written by Jewish people. They were monotheistic. They believed in one God. Going back to Deuteronomy 6-4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one. And of course, Lord there in capitals represents the Hebrew word Yahweh, which in English we sometimes say Jehovah, but it's the name of God, the unique personal name of the God of the Old Testament. There's one God, and his name is Yahweh. He's the only one. Now, that's fundamental to the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, And even to all forms of Judaism today, if you're going to be a Jewish person, a religious Jew, at minimum, that's the confession you must make. There's only one God. When Jesus was asked in Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 31, which is the greatest commandment of all, he quoted Deuteronomy 6.4. He said, the first commandment is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then he said, the second commandment is like this. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. You can summarize the entire message of the Bible of Jesus' day. There's one God, and you're to love him with all your being, and then you're to love your neighbor. You're to love other people as yourself. And so, actually, Everything we believe is based on the oneness of God. Now, I'll just say as apostolics, think about it. Uh, We believe that Jesus Christ is the revelation of the one true God, not a second person, but one God manifest in the flesh as the Son of God. We believe in the plan of salvation is faith in Jesus Christ, repentance from sin, baptism in the name of Jesus Christ, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's based on the oneness of God. Why is repentance so important? Not merely a confession of faith, but actually a turn from sin, a turn from all the false gods to the one true God, a turn from multiple loves to loving one God. Repentance is based on knowing there's only one God who deserves our worship and our love and our allegiance. Why do we baptize in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that singular name? Because we know, according to Colossians 2, 9, that in him, Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It's not three different names. of three different beings that each are part of our salvation, that each deserve separate allegiance, but there's one God revealed in Jesus Christ. Why do we emphasize receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God? Some people say, well, you confess Jesus is your Savior and uh, sometime later, if you want more power, you receive the Holy Spirit. It's just two different things. Well, if you had different persons, you might say, "Well, I receive one person one time, I receive another person another time." But if there's only one God, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you are receiving the Spirit of that one God. It's not an optional extra; it's part of entering the new life in Christ, being filled with His Spirit, and then the pursuit of holiness. Why is that so important? Because In the Old Testament, God called his people to be different from all the other nations so that everybody could know those are the people of Yahweh. Those are the people of the one God. So the way they worship, their day set aside for worship, their dress, their food, everything about them you could identify, that's a Hebrew. That's a Jew. That's the people of Yahweh. They were separated. And that same concept is true today. Today. God does not call us as a physical nation. We are people of every ethnicity, every race, every background, every nation, every walk of life. But we're called to be the people of the name of Jesus. We're called to be different from the world. We're set apart from the world unto God. That's holiness. So everything about our identity is related to the oneness of God. Even our worship. Why do we get so exuberant in our worship? Why do we even get radical at times? Why do we get emotional? Because there is no other God to worship. We're not holding back part of our strength for someone else. But he deserves all the praise, all the worship, all the glory. Because he's the only one. Praise God. So that was the background in which the New Testament was written. So when you look at the New Testament writers, and in my thesis, I focused on the Apostle Paul because you have to narrow it down. I said, here's the dilemma. They were strictly monotheistic Jews, and yet they spoke of Jesus in terms of deity. How could they do that? The classic Trinitarian response is well, they had two objects of worship and then three objects of worship. But that would be a fatal compromise of monotheism. What would motivate somebody like the Apostle Paul, a Jew trained from birth, to believe, Hero, Israel. So, Lord our God is one, what would motivate him all of a sudden to say Jesus is Lord? All the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Jesus. How is it possible that he would change or modify his understanding so radically? Now, some scholars, a very popular theory over the last century was this. Well, the early Jewish church was strictly monotheistic as we would expect so they would never worship Jesus because that would be a compromise. But as the church got filled with pagans, with Gentiles, well, the Gentiles are polytheistic, so it's no problem to say, hey, let's add Jesus to the pantheon. We have God, and then we have Jesus, and so they can worship both. And they said, that's what happened in the New Testament. But actually, when you drill down the New Testament, that's not what happened. From the earliest times, the Christians said Jesus is God. It's shocking. From a from an academic point of view, how could they change so radically? How could overnight seemingly, of course, we would not say compromise, but how could they seemingly expand their Jewish concept? And here's a little example uh, just to show you from an academic perspective, but the earliest Christians, university said Jesus is Lord. Now, that might not sound like a big deal to us, But that term Lord in its exalted sense, in the sense of worship and praise, was reserved only for Yahweh. So to say Jesus is Lord and to say he's worthy of worship, he's worthy of prayer, uh, that is a radical statement of deity. And then there's an interesting statement if you read in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about, People in false doctrine, he says anathema, that's, that's an Aramaic word meaning they're cursed. And then he says maranatha, which means the Lord, uh, it, it's really seen as a, an invocation or a prayer. Oh, Lord, come. Now, what's really interesting about that is 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books to be written, probably around AD, the early A.D. 50s. And so it represents some of the oldest writings of the Christian faith this is according to scholars, and using that Aramaic term, Paul was writing in Greek, but he used an Aramaic term, which Aramaic was the common language of Jews in first century Palestine. So what does that tell you? This had already become a key doctrinal word while the church was still Jewish, before it ever became Greek. So it wasn't a later addition. Another example that we would understand, hallelujah. Of course, that's Hebrew. Praise praise Yahweh. Hallelujah. Yah for Yahweh. Or amen. Amen is, is so be it. So just like in, in our own vernacular, we're using hallelujah because it goes back to Old Testament times. We don't just use the English. We use the hallelujah because it's become so embedded in the church from ancient times, this become a key word. And so for the Apostle Paul to say Maranatha to, when he's writing in Greek to a, a Gentile church means that language is so embedded in the life of the church from the earliest times, even before it became Gentile, even before it became Greek speaking. It was known throughout the world, known throughout the world as a key word, Maranatha, O Lord come. Literally, it's a prayer to Jesus in Aramaic signifying that worship of Jesus was not a later development. Worship of Jesus was embedded in the very beginning of the church, in the worship of the church. They would pray, oh Lord, come. If Jesus was just a man, why would they pray to him? If he wasn't the true God, why would they pray to him, and why would they call him Lord? So that's just an example. It sets up the dilemma from a historical perspective why would Paul, a Jew, and remember, he persecuted Christians, so he wasn't sympathetic to them at all, but when he had a conversion experience, why did he turn on a dime and say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, and did he see that as a compromise of the Old Testament, or how did he explain it? How did he, how did he deal with that? And, and so, as I studied it, I saw more clearly, if you read the conversion experience of Paul, it's related three times in Acts. And each time, if you read through it, Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, Paul makes a statement that he saw the Lord. So more than hearing the voice, he had a vision of the ascended Christ. Now, if you go to Acts 9, you know, Paul is traveling on the road to Damascus, to persecute Christians, so he's, trying to, Christian, so he's trying to arrest them, put them in jail, some are executed, so he feels like he's a good Jew, he's trying to stamp out this heresy of people worshiping this false god, worshiping this second god who should not be worshiped. There's a voice from heaven, it strikes him down, he becomes blind, and apparently he has a vision of this divine being. So Paul is a Jew. He knows there's only one God. He knows if a voice that speaks from heaven, that has to be Yahweh. He's not prepared to say that could be Zeus or, or, you know, some other being. He knows that that would have to be Yahweh. And when he sees this brilliant uh, light and when he sees this glory and we see this manifested being, as I said, if you study carefully, he saw the Lord. He even says, the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He had a vision. So Paul is calculating, I'm seeing a heavenly vision of a divine being. That could only be Yahweh. But wait a minute, something's wrong. I'm doing the work of Yahweh. Why would Yahweh strike me down and make me blind if I'm doing his work? So what's the first question he asks? Who are you, Lord? I thought I knew you. I thought I was your servant. I thought I was doing your will. But you're pretty upset with me right now. Who are you anyway? I don't think he was doubting that there was one God, that God was Yahweh or Jehovah, but he was saying something is dreadfully wrong in my relationship. I thought I was very close to you. I thought I was your servant. Now, now you're angry with me. Who are you, Lord? Now, notice the Lord accepted the question on its own terms. He didn't say, that's the wrong question. You think there's only one of us up here, but actually there are two or three of us up here, and I need to introduce you. He didn't change the question and say, your theology is so messed up, I have to reorient your theology. He basically accepted the question, but said, I am Jesus, the very one you are persecuting. That was the revelation. Paul, there is only one God. He is known as Yahweh. But your problem is you're fighting that one God because that one God has been manifested in the flesh. It's Jesus Christ. You are fighting against the Lord you're wanting to worship. I am Jesus. And that's still the revelation today. So when Paul saw that heavenly vision of a divine being in glory and that divine being said, I'm Jesus, he saw literally the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So that phrase that I read was not just, you know, we really like Jesus, so we're going to say this. Paul was testifying, I on the road to Damascus saw The glory of God and the shocking thing, Moses saw his glory, Isaiah saw his glory, but the shocking thing was I saw the glory of the one true God emanating from the face of the human man, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins and rose again. The reason why Paul became a believer is he saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, hallelujah. So that's how Paul could become a believer. He encountered it in the most dramatic, personal way possible. So then the question becomes, how did he integrate that with his theology? So there's only one God. Jesus is God. Does that mean two gods? That will seem to, con- to contradict everything the Old Testament says. If you go to 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there's one God. This is, of course, Paul explaining. And really, if you could understand first, a good grasp on the New Testament doctrine of God is there's, there's one God, and there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So there's one God. That's the same teaching in the Old Testament, no change. New, new revelation does not contradict old revelation. Truth, you know, as truth is revealed in a greater way. It doesn't contract, contradict what you already know. So like if you study calculus everything you learned about arithmetic is still true. And you really have to learn arithmetic first before you learn calculus. When you read Shakespeare, everything you learned in elementary school about the English language is basically true, but you have to learn that first before you understand Shakespeare. And so the greater revelation of God is in the New Testament, but the New Testament doesn't contradict the Old Testament. Everything you learn about God, you need to start with the building blocks of the Old Testament, there's only one God, God is a spirit. God is all-powerful, omnipotent. God is omniscient, all-wise, all-knowing. You know, God is omnipresent. God's everywhere present. So you don't, you, that never changes. So the oneness of God can't be compromised. That's the building block. What's the new revelation of the New Testament? Not a second God or a second person. The new revelation of the New Testament is the one God who created us, our Heavenly Father. He loved us so much that he came in flesh as Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to be our personal Savior. That's the new revelation. See, our sins separated us from God. We sinned against our Heavenly Father. We sinned against the lawgiver. God, death. So there's this gap that couldn't be breached. No human could resolve that because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. No one could be our savior or mediator because we're all in the same boat. And God is holy, so he can't become sinful. So we can't make ourselves holy to restore fellowship. God can't make himself sinful to have fellowship. There seems to be an unresolvable dilemma, a gulf. But what was impossible to do, God did. Because God came in the flesh as a genuine human being, not a sinful human But just like Adam and Eve, when they were created, they weren't sinners, they were human, but it was before sin. So Jesus Christ was fully human. You might say he was more human than we are because we're fallen humans, we're sinful humans, we're flawed humans. He was original human, as God intended. As a human being, then, Jesus lived a sinless life. Everything Adam and Eve did wrong, he did right. And so... He was the only sinless human who never lived. He was the only one who deserved to inherit God's plan. He was the only one who didn't deserve to die. But so he was able to represent us to God. And God was in Christ. This is what you should also know. 1 Timothy 2.5 doesn't stand alone, but 2 Corinthians 5.19. To wit, in other words, to explain it, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. So do not think of Jesus Christ as a second divine person who is the mediator bringing us back to the first divine person. But think of Jesus Christ as the one true God. God was in Christ. He was bringing people back into fellowship to himself. So the mediator, think of it this way. Jesus is both God and human at the same time in his own body he houses the presence of god not merely by receiving god's spirit as we do but by identity by being born of a virgin conceived miraculously by the power of the holy spirit he was god by identity and so as a human he could represent us but when we and he is sinless so he could bridge the gap between sinful humans and the Holy God, because he was a sinless human. So he was the mediator bring us back into fellowship with God. Because when we have fellowship with Jesus, when we believe and obey his gospel, we have fellowship with him. But since he's God in Christ, we now have fellowship with God. And so we're restored to fellowship because of Jesus. Notice it says specifically, the man Christ Jesus the human being, Christ Jesus. So he is the mediator according to the flesh. Now, if this is hard to understand, this is the mystery of the incarnation. How could the infinite God become a finite human being? It is a mystery because we can't comprehend it, but it is so because the Bible clearly proclaims it. It's the only basis for our salvation. Only as a human could Jesus take our place and die for our sins and shed his blood. But only as God does he have power and authority to take away our sins. He had to be both God and man at the same time to be our Savior. If you think of him just as a sinless man, you might say, well, he could die for one person, but how could he die for millions of persons? But if he's the infinite God manifest in the flesh, that one death can be applied to the whole world. If he were only a man, a sinless man, you could say, well, maybe he could, he could, he could substitute for one person, but he was just in the grave three days, so how could that substitute for eternity? But if he's the eternal God, then that one human death for that one time could be applied to all eternity. In other words, only the Savior had to be both God and human at the same time. The mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. So here's the thing. If you thought of two divine persons, that the second one is the mediator, that wouldn't work. Because if we're sinners, the first person is holy And we need a mediator to bring us back into fellowship with the first person. Well, if there's a second person, he's co-equal to the first person. He's just as holy as the first person. He couldn't be the mediator. We'd have to have a mediator to get us back in touch with the second person. You see? So the point of that little thought experiment is a second divine person, by definition, could not be the mediator. Because we would have problems connecting with him. We'd need a mediator to get to him. It's not as a second person, but it's as an authentic human being who was born, who lived, and as a human, he could represent us to God. He could be our substitute. He could take the penalty of our sins, and yet because God was in him, we're restored to fellowship with God. And so there's one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, Not the second person, Christ Jesus, but the human being, Christ Jesus. So Paul was able to put that together. It's not a compromise of the one God. But Jesus is that one God who came in this world to be our mediator. Now, let me fast forward. In 2 Corinthians, if you just go back a few verses, you know, the chapters and verse divisions are added later for our help But it's all in the same context. 2 Corinthians 3, 16. So the Apostle Paul was explaining, leading up to uh, the statement that I started with, the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. So he's talking about the Jewish people, how by and large, they haven't accepted the gospel. Paul has as a Jew, but many Jews haven't. And so he explains that he uses an example in the Old Testament when God spoke to Moses, God revealed himself to Moses. Moses went in the tabernacle. He was in the presence of God, the glory of God. And, but then when he came out, his face was glowing from that encounter. And it was so overwhelming, he had to put a veil on his face to protect it from the people. Of course, that didn't happen the rest of his life. Eventually, the glory must have faded away because he didn't spend the rest of his life with a veil over his face. But just for that time, that direct encounter with God. So Paul uses that example, trying to help the Corinthians understand, because they're wanting to know, well, Paul, if you're right, how come God's people don't really agree with you? How come the Jewish people don't really understand this? So Paul has to explain in 2 Corinthians three sixteen. nevertheless, well, I'll go back to verse 15. But even uh, unto this day when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. So he says, just like Moses had a physical veil, So the Jewish people couldn't directly see the glory of God. So now, when we read Moses, it's like they still have a veil. They don't really see what's going on. They don't see that Jesus is the prophetic fulfillment. So there's like a veil over their heart, but, verse 16, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. So when the Jewish people, and by extension, we can say us as well, even if you're not Jewish, when we turn to the Lord, and that's a technical term for conversion, when you turn away from your sin to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So when you seek the Lord, when you repent of your sins, when you cry out to God, that veil that is obscured truth is taken away. Then you can see the Lord. You can see the truth. So when they turn to the Lord, verse 17, Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass or a mirror the glory of the Lord are changed in the same image from glory to glory, even as by the spirit of the Lord. Now, there is an interesting combination of terminology here And you read all the commentators, the various Trinitarian theologians, they have a hard time figuring this out because the Lord in the Old Testament passage is Yahweh, Jehovah. So when you start reading this, it's talking about Moses had the veil to obscure the glory of Yahweh. But yet in this New Testament context, the Lord is Jesus. So which is it? Which is right? And so commentators argue back and forth for one or the other. And my answer is both, because Paul is tried to show you something. The Lord of the Old Testament was Yahweh, Jehovah. But when people turn to Jesus and repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, then they realize Jesus is Lord. Not a second Lord, but the same Lord that spoke to Moses. The same God that revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush says, I am who I am, said in, in John 8:58, Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. Not just I used to be, I was, but I am. It was the divine title. So actually, the Lord here starts off as Jehovah. But when the veil is taken away, just like Paul, you say, Oh, that's Jesus. So Paul says, who are you, Lord Jehovah? And the Lord Jehovah says, I am Jesus. So Paul says when Jewish people read the Old Testament, there's a veil. They're trying to understand who the Lord really is. When the veil is taken away and they turn to the Lord, repent of their sins, then they realize the Lord is Jesus. We're not getting rid of the Old Testament, God. We're not adding another God to the Old Testament God, but we realize the Old Testament Lord is the New Testament Lord. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Jesus Christ of the New Testament. So if that's not confusing enough, or I would say revelatory, he says, now the Lord is the Spirit. So if you're a Trinitarian now, you really have problems because, okay, there's the Old Testament Lord, then there's a the New Testament Lord, and the New Testament Lord is the Spirit. But wait a minute, that's a different person. But no, Paul is speaking of an apostolic Pentecostal conversion experience, which we know what that is. That includes not only repentance, but being baptized in Jesus' name, being filled with the Holy Spirit. So he says, now the Lord, the Old Testament Jehovah, that when the veil is taken away, becomes a New Testament Jesus. He says, I'll give you a further revelation. The Lord is the Spirit. So when you receive the Holy Spirit, you're not being introduced to a different person. You're actually receiving the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's the same Lord. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And then he talks about how we're progressively changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And actually, it's very interesting because the Greek text, and you'll see this in various translations, it says, the Lord who is the Spirit. So it's not just a spirit belonging to the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord really means here the Spirit who is the Lord, which that does make sense because if you say, well, Brother Bernard, um, if I talk about my spirit, if you want to know my spirit, you know, you hear me. Preaching, you can know me by my word. But if we sit down and talk, have dinner together, we interact, we pray together, then maybe you can know my spirit. But you're not knowing a different person. You're knowing me. My spirit is me. My spirit is not a different person from me. It's how you know me. And so the spirit of the Lord is its not referring to a, a, a third spirit that belongs to the second spirit. But it's actually saying in the Greek, if you say it out, The Lord, who is the Spirit. So, in this one passage, Paul is saying, Our Heavenly Father, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, the lawgiver, when the veil is taken away, you understand that's Jesus Christ. And when you seek Jesus, repent of your sins, have faith in Jesus, and say, Lord Jesus, I want to accept you in my heart, what happens? You receive the Holy Spirit. And so, you realize the Lord Jesus Christ comes to you as the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three different beings or three different gods or even three different persons, but that's how the one God is fully revealed to you and becomes active in salvation and active in your life. The Lord Jehovah is the Lord Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit. So here you have a pretty comprehensive statement of the Godhead packed into those few phrases And then that's why Paul can go on in the next chapter, verse 4, for God. Well, actually, uh, verse 4, or let's just say verse 3. Let's go chapter 4, verse 3. But if our gospel be hid, so if you can't understand this, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God should shine upon them. So remember, God is a spirit. As such, he's invisible. In fact, John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. And that was written after the incarnation. John 4.24, God is a spirit. So there's a sense in which you could never see God as an invisible spirit. With human eyes, you'll never see the Spirit, but he said Christ is the image of God. So Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. That's like John 14 where Jesus was talking to his disciples just before his crucifixion and, of course, subsequent uh, resurrection and ascension, and he said, you know, you've seen the Father. You know him. They said, wait a minute. We don't think we've actually seen the Father. Could you just show us the Father one time and we'll be satisfied? Just let's actually see him. You know, I've used this with people of other faiths. I said, you know, we disagree on the Godhead, but let's all agree agree we want to go to heaven, right? And let's all agree that if we all go to heaven, we'll see Jesus, right? Every Christian believes that. Of any denomination, background, Catholic, Protestant, whatever, we all think we'll go to heaven and see Jesus, right? Okay, so let's say we all go up there And see Jesus, and we worship him and praise him and extol him. After a while, somebody says, hey, Jesus, it's so good to see you, but can you you let us see your Father? Take us to your Father. What would Jesus have to say? His word is forever settled in heaven. He's not going to change his word. The same word he said to Philip in John 14, he's going to say to you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because the Father dwells in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How do, why do you ask? Show us the Father. You know, the works that I've done, I've done works that only the Father could do. Who could heal the sick by their own authority? Who could forgive sin by their own authority? Who could calm the forces of nature by their own authority? Who could raise the dead by the, their own authority? Nobody could do that except God. So if you can't believe my words, believe the works. And you'll know the Father dwells in me, and he is doing the works. You know, he had earlier said, I and my father are one, John 10, 30. I've had some people say over the years, well, you know, husband and wife are one, so that doesn't negate the fact they're different persons. Well, that's true, but Jesus is going beyond that. He's going beyond agreement of two different persons. He's talking about essential oneness of identity because he says, the words that I speak in you, I speak not of my own, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now, I'm very happy to have my wife here today. Uh, we are one. We've been one for 42 years. And, but I can't say if you've seen me, you've seen my wife. <laughs> Thankfully. You can look for yourself. And even though there may be a lot of truth to this, I will never admit publicly The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but my wife who dwelleth in me does the works. (laughs) She tells people sometimes, if I do a good job, well, he followed my notes this time. (laughs) The point is, Jesus was speaking of identity. Christ is the image of God. The God you cannot see becomes visible. In Jesus Christ. And so Paul says he's the image of God. And then, of course, that leads to the statement that we started with earlier that in verse 6 for God, well, let let me just finish it off. In verse 4 in whom the God of this world had blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine into them. For we preach not ourselves. But Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, the same God who created us, the same God who spoke in Genesis, let there be light. And there was light, that God. That same God has shined in our hearts. How? When we receive the Holy Spirit. But when you receive the Holy Spirit, now you probably won't have a physical vision like Paul did, but the principle will be the same. When the God of the Old Testament, the creator of the universe, speaks to your life, and you receive his Holy Spirit, you receive, in potential at least, the revelation it has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it all brings us back to Jesus. So that's why in Colossians 2, 9 through 10, which I alluded to earlier, the Apostle Paul could say, for in him, Christ Jesus the Lord, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Bodily, real human being. Godhead. The Godhead is complete. But just to make sure you know, he said the fullness of the Godhead. You can't really have a partial Godhead because a partial Godhead wouldn't be God. But just if that's the way you think, Paul says you can't think that way, the fullness of the Godhead. And if that still didn't dawn on you, he says all the fullness. Technically, the word God is, is sufficient. You won't need fullness. It's redundant, logically. All is redundant still, but there's a point. He's trying to drive the point home like a carpenter He's pounding the nail, it's already in. He's got, but he's got to hit it one more time to clinch it. In him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead. That's who Jesus is. Bodily. And then I close with verse 10. If you don't agree with everything I said, you don't believe everything I said, no, that's okay. Pray about it. Study the scripture. Talk to Pastor Carson. Get my book, The Oneness of God, you know, whatever. See how threw that in? But here's verse 10. and You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. If you don't understand all the theology, but you know one thing, Jesus. If all you know today is Jesus, you know enough to repent of your sins. You would know enough to get baptized in Jesus' name. You would know enough to receive the Holy Spirit. If all you know is Jesus, you could get saved today. If all you know is Jesus, you could be healed today. If all you know is Jesus, demons could be cast out today. If all you know is Jesus, you could be set free today. If all you know is Jesus, you can step into a new and abundant life. Why don't we all stand right now and let's praise the Lord together because we have the revelation not only in theology, but in our lives the glory of God has been revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, I'm excited about that message. Let's worship the Lord together right now.